And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 258 of the Lace Em Up podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. Uh, we do have a, a fully loaded show with hockey news as well. Uh, it's going to be kind of a bad news episode. Yeah. Not really um, that much good news to report in in this edition. And uh, we'll we'll start off with with probably the toughest news of all for yeah. a lot for a lot of you that um, that have been in the hockey community. I'm sure one way or another you have heard of this 26 year old man by the name of Brian Fraser Um, around 2014 or 2015. I'm pretty sure it was for a Nepean Raiders broadcast at CKDJ, a campus radio station at Ottawa's Algonquin college that I met this guy and, and Brett, we've had him on the show too. Yeah. I was, I was about to mention that. I didn't want to interrupt you, but yes, we've had him on the show. So if you have been a longtime listener of the show, you have heard of Brian Fraser's voice at least. Yeah. I, I know for sure. We maybe had him twice, but for sure, I think we only had him once. Our special guest. I only, I think we only had him once. Yeah, yeah. It was actually a week before um, his world kind of got turned upside down right. with, with, uh, with. Anyways, um, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you go uh, with with everything that's yeah. gone on the past couple of years. Um, so about Brian, like I said, met him around 2014 or 2015. Uh, went to radio school at Algonquin College, um, and I would help out with uh, sports broadcasts at the college after I made my exit in 2013, after I graduated, and it was around 2014 or 2015 where I met Brian Fraser, and um, pretty easy guy to get along with. We cheered for the same local teams, notably the Ottawa Senators. We talked hockey nonstop, um, kind of hockey brothers in a way. And a short time later, we became colleagues at 580 CFRA, which is a news talk station in Ottawa. Um, Brian eventually became a staple on the Morning Rush with Bill Carroll as a technical producer. That was back in 2016, I believe. Uh, It's one thing to produce a live radio show. It's one thing to play audio clips and to have an effortless flow to the show. And I would challenge anyone to also find the energy to wake up at 4 a.m., every morning at the hour of stupid uh to do all of that to have the type of intangible chemistry with the host where you find a perfect soundbite and a split second that adds to the conversation is quite honestly a lot harder than you might think and brian fraser is a pro at that he had those intangibles as a tech producer his work ethic just absolutely amazing he's a problem solver you can't measure what he brought to the table on the what we call the may 2-4 weekend in 2019 long weekend he was working the saturday morning shift i was taking over for him at 12 p.m after his shift ended and at the at the time he was very tired there was actually a wedding he was going to he mentioned he was going for a quick power nap, then heading to the festivities after that. That same night, I'm feeling well, so he goes to a hospital. The next day, I opened up my Facebook, feed, uh, uh, my Facebook feed, and I saw Brian's post illustrating the tough battle that awaited him. Brian was diagnosed with leukemia. And in between the ups and downs, his cancer went in remission in the middle of 2020. Things as far as I know, we're looking promising and he was getting better, which was really amazing to see. 
um, November of 2020, just a few weeks before Christmas, uh, we got the sad news that came back and the outlook did not look good, but Brian kept fighting all the same and throughout his journey, he used his energy to focus on making a difference. And that was his definition of making a difference was encouraging people to donate blood. And this, this guy, this guy started a massive fantasy hockey pool. This was a few months ago. Okay. He started a massive hockey pool that had 200 team owner slots on it. And he asked me to join. And I thought, man, you have to have at least 10 Crosby's, 10 McDavid's, 10 McKinnon's, 10 Matthews and 10 Pasternak's or else you might not even have enough taxi squad guys to fill out all those rosters. Mm. Um, so it was a massive extravaganza that he put forward. And the entry to get into this hockey pool is a blood donation. And that was Brian in a nutshell, always thinking of the bigger picture, always putting others before himself. Um, and this, this journey had gotten so big to the point that recently Bobby Ryan, who is now a former member of the Senators, current member of the Senators, was so touched by Brian's story that he gave $250 to a Brady Kachuk goal for uh, this past Saturday's Sends Money on the Board proceeds. Uh, the shut out, so all it was was $250, but still $250 from Bobby frickin' Ryan. How amazing is yeah. that? And it just goes to show you when NHL teams, local teams like the Sens and teams around the league and players of those teams take notice – and and fans of those teams take notice. It goes to show you how big his mission was. By the end of it, this was more than just Brian's battle against cancer. It had become so much bigger than that. And throughout it all, he never forgot the importance of the little things. Um, back in January, Brian made the tough decision to stop cancer treatments so he could spend more time with his family and create more memories with his friends. Um, recently, you would see him on Twitter commenting on live sporting events. In fact, uh, some of his most recent tweets were about, I kid you not, a rebroadcast of the 2011 NFL playoffs featuring the Atlanta Falcons and the New York Giants. Remember when they were good? Yeah. And um, yeah, like I said, didn't let cancer change him in the slightest. He lived life his way. He called his shots. There honestly isn't a perfect playbook to fight this disease. I believe if there was, we'd have a cure by now. Um, but Brian Fraser made the most out of every single situation. And what he did in the past 18, 19, 20 months is bigger than anything he did in his radio career. And I am just so damn proud of him. On Thursday, after Ottawa beat Calgary 6-1 to one in a loft in which I believe is honestly... The most stress, the the least stress-filled sends when I've seen in ages, because seen too many of those. At I did not want to see. Brian Fraser, had passed away. Yeah. And no matter how hard you prepare, for news like that, it still hits you pretty hard. And re reading that news hurt a lot. It hurt because he deserved a much better outcome than what he got in the end. And I'm just so grateful to have known Brian for as long as I did. I'm glad that I got to text him back and forth during that epic sense comeback win against the Maple Leafs. That was so much fun to watch. We were 
all just laughing our asses off at the fact that the Leafs were actually collapsing again. Right. And like so many people, I just wish there was more time to spend with Brian. And I'm proud to call this man a friend and always will be. Um, so my deepest condolences to the Fraser family, his close friends, and everyone in Brockville. And my sincere thanks to all of them for helping to raise such an awesome human being. And if Brian wanted anything, I'm sure it's this. Please help finish what he started. If it is safe to do so, wherever you are, please donate blood. You never know whose life you could save. It does make a difference in ways you will probably never know. Rest peacefully, Brian. We miss you, and we fucking love you, man. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that was beautifully well said. It's hard to uh, come back from that. Um, yeah, I've... I'll just say my piece and then we'll just have like a moment of silence, I guess. Um, yeah, I've only met him once, uh, through this recording and stuff. And he was by far like the most, like he was one of the more knowledgeable sports fans we've had on the show. Um, I remember particularly when you would email me saying like, Oh, you want, uh, this guy on the, on the show, Brian Fraser on the show. And I was just like, okay, let, let, let's do it. He's, you know, he seems like a cool dude who it's a radio show. You were telling me that he was a Red Sox fan. And I was just like, Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. At least I can relate to him on that level and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I so, remember you guys really bonded yeah, over yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we started to talk about the Red Sox and at that point the Red Sox were doing really well and stuff. And, um, and then when we, uh, we mm -hmm. had a podcast and it really just, our, our podcast really just felt like it was, uh, it was like a, a meeting with like a couple of friends, even though I had just met him. And obviously you guys are, are really, really close. So um, it was just. Yeah, he just honestly, felt so... I think it's one of the few guys that talks about sports more than me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you which can, is odd. You can, I mean, it is, it is, it was his job and all that stuff. So it was just um, so amazing to like hear him speak. And even though I've like only, you know, talk to him once through that podcast. It's like, it's just amazing how much of an effect he's had on this, you know, just on me where I'm like, like I, I saw the tweet that he was saying that he wasn't going to take any more medication uh, because there was less chance of him surviving it um, if he had taken it, which is very, very brave. Um, and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. I see like all these replies, like from guys that like Jeff Merrick, uh, Chris Johnston, uh, Steve Dangle, um, like all mm -hmm. these like people that are like so well known, like Sportsnet and stuff. It's just like, it's truly amazing that like, he's like, it wasn't just us. It wasn't, you know, he was, he was a good guy just from us, but it was also from, like, guys who are on TV every single day talking about hockey. Um, and that's just, like, it just shows how, like, amazing he truly was, is that it, it didn't matter who we are, because we're just fans, and, like, those people are, like, Sportsnet people. It's like, he was able to connect with whoever you were, no matter how famous you were or how um, stuff you wear is just like the power of sports and stuff and that's what truly brought to me where I was like oh wow he had like it wasn't just us it was like everyone in the hockey world mm -hmm. um, and yeah. 
Um, yeah, it really just hit me the other day where I was just thinking, like, even though I've never met this guy in person um, and all that stuff, but it's just, like, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's just uh, it's amazing how, or not amazing, but cancer just sucks. It's, um, yeah. it like, ju- just like COVID, it doesn't care who you are. It doesn't even care that you had it before, that you survived it before. It doesn't care how old you are, how, um, how many people love you, how many, um, you know, if you're, uh, healthy or not healthy, if you, you know, it doesn't, or your economic status, it doesn't care. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where it's just, yeah, cancer is not good. And, and I think you're, you, what you were saying is correct is like, if Brian, wanted anything out of this to happen it would be to donate blood like you said and also donate to any cancer research place uh because um it's not like you know we're in the pandemic and it's towards the beginning of the end i hope but like cancer is something that doesn't even have a cure um it doesn't have a vaccine and Mm -hmm. um so that needs a lot of um help into uh as well uh not just giving blood because you you know you want to prevent this from happening uh because uh he was gone too soon um in our life um and also i i also want to mention that it was very very cool when i saw on thursday the ottawa senators just tweeted out um it was just a bunch of the sense players on center ice lifting their stick up and it just had two words it said for brian um, yeah, that was that was Friday, the day after. Friday, yeah, yeah. I believe right. it was at 11 p.m. where I yeah. saw the tweet from his dad that uh, Brian had passed. Right, right. And the next, I I don't know how fast it trickled into the dressing room if they woke yeah. up to the news like a lot of us did, or yeah. if they found out after the game. But um, yeah, Thursday at 11 p.m. is when we got the tweet that he had passed, unfortunately. And yeah, um, it was a very touching tribute, and they debuted these uh, decals at the back of their helmets. I believe that'll be something that remains a theme for the rest of the year and as, as it should. Yeah. And I, I just like, it's just, it's, again, it's just so amazing that like, this is a guy that we met or I met yep. uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, and all of a sudden now he's like this, you know, everyone knows who he is in the hockey world. So um, unfortunately for wrong reason, for bad reasons, just because he's dead, but it is like, I think that's kind of like a, also in the other end, it's like just these last couple of months, it, it showed like, like at least he was alive and when all the stuff was happening and everyone, like, I think the saints probably said something too, but like, yeah, Drew Brees, yeah, Drew, Drew Brees in particular actually reached out to him through a yeah. video message. So it's which- like... Yeah. which meant a lot to him. It meant the world to him. Yeah, so it's like it's just so cool that like the fact that he was he was alive during all the like when all this stuff was happening. Um so it's like at least he gets that where everyone he knows how much he was loved in this world mm, before yeah. he goes away. So that's like the one positive takeaway I would say um is that he at least had some um you know like like things that will never happen to any other human 
um, since. So it's and and I'm also I'm remarkable. also glad that he's not in pain anymore. He doesn't yep. have to fight cancer anymore. That that's done. He's yep. he's at peace with that. But it it still sucks, flat out. Right. Um, it, it sucks to lose someone that close. Yeah. So. so um. So I don't know how to transition to actual hockey news. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do like a moment of silence. And then we'll get into actual hockey news, um, but uh, yeah, and and sh- and like Steve was saying, that my thoughts are with every family and friends, like Steve as well, um, or not just Steve, but every friend he's ever had. Um, yeah, all right. Okay, so in uh, in hockey news, this uh, this news story would have been our biggest um, would would have been our main topic if Claude Julian hadn't been fired, but um, it happened like almost right after we finished recording. Oh no, no, after we finished our episode. Yeah, well, we, yeah. we had recorded on the Sunday, right, and right. what yeah, happened, this happened on is Monday. we put out the episode Monday afternoon at like noon, 1 p.m. is, yeah. and before we put out the new podcast is that's when right. it broke. Yeah, that, yeah that's so right. Monday it happened morning, on Monday. Because I remember right. you sent me a series of emails about it. Yeah, no, you're right. That It happened on Monday. Um, and uh, so Artemi Panarin, uh, he, takes, uh, he took a leave of absence in Russia, uh, or to go to Russia, I should say. I'm sorry, I'm a little flustered now, um, but uh, he he uh, because he um, one of his former coach, uh, uh, I think his name was uh, oh I have the name here Andre Nazarov Andre Nazarov who's kind of like been a little bit known as like a um, he's like a hothead um, as well like he has that reputation of being like a Patrick Waugh type coach. Um, anyways, uh, he he told this Russian tabloid um, that he struck, that Panarin struck an 18-year-old woman in a Latvian hotel bar 10 years ago. Um, however, uh, w- uh, there's a number of reports since that happened where uh, that makes this uh, story seem kind of false. Uh, the this woman who would be 28 by now hasn't come forward. Uh, the KHL, uh, which is the league that Panarin was in or this team was in, has uh, denied it. Uh, the Rangers have denied it and like almost right away said that you know this is all a false uh, accusation. Um, Should of, also be noted that Panarin's KHL teammates right. at the time also think this story is false. Right, and I was about to get to that, and that's like probably like of those things I just said. That's probably like the biggest um, evidence that this is not true. Um, and it's interesting too, as I I think I forget if we've mentioned it on the show or not, but uh, about a month ago, uh, Panarin has. Uh, he wrote on his, he posted on his Instagram page that he had, he was in support of Putin's, um, 
opposition, uh, Nav- Navgelny, I think his name is. Alexei Navalny. Navalny, Navalny. Thanks. I'm, I'm bad with names, as you can tell. Um, and um, which is like at the time is was pretty much unprecedented because you have guys like in the NHL, of course, you have a ton of Russians, but like Ovechkin and Malkin have been pretty adamant about being on Team Putin. Um, even that's what they're called, Team Putin. Um, and I guess there's a bunch of Russians that haven't really come forward with who they support. But um, but this was a big deal because in Russia, like they don't have like democracy like they have here in the States or in Canada, uh, where like if you say that you don't like the dictator Putin, you're not, you know, you could be killed. Um, and this Navalny guy was also even poisoned by Putin. Um, so that's how serious it gets. And um, so the thing that's interesting about this is that I guess Panarin took a leave of absence to deal with this, even though this is a fabricated story. But I think this was in in response to the fact that he still has family in Russia and his family could be attacked at any moment. So it's hard to really know what's going on there. Um, so I hope everything's safe with him there. Um, and I think there was some reports that this may be like a ploy for uh, Nazarov to get to be a coach on the Russian Olympic team in a couple years. Um, I guess it would be in 2022. So yeah, in two years. So like, and this would be a ploy so that like Panarin would be left off, which by the way, um, if you don't have Panarin on your team, like you're not going to win any medals. (laughs) So I don't like, it's like, I understand that there's political thing, but um, you're, you're not going to have a good time if Panarin's not on your team, but I I can understand it obviously. But um, anyways, um, and then, um, and then there was also like, um, yeah, so I I think there's a number of different ways that we can go about this, but um, I, and there's still like, you know, we don't know exactly how it's going to unfold because Russia's also been known to like fabricate these stories. And because, like I said, it's not a true democracy in Russia, it's almost the opposite of democracy that like there is a chance that like, you know, Russia will like, <laughs> like put him in jail for this. Um, and that's um, obviously that's probably the worst case scenario, but um it's very it could happen um it wouldn't be surprising if that has happened um and yeah so it's it's kind of a tense situation right now and i hope for the best that panarin let you know panarin can come back and make his return again but um and it's unfortunate that he even has to deal with this but uh, at the same time kudos for him to take the balls and just run with it or just like have be risky with his um, you know, and being outspoken with this because there's not too many outspoken hockey players. And this is like, it's huge that, um, that he was, he's able to like do this and, um, and take a leave of absence. And the Rangers are in full support of this, uh, even knowing that they're, they're, you know, that their seasons, you know, they're probably not making the playoffs now. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, I hope every I I hope that Panarin's family is all okay and and Panarin's okay. Um, but I I think there's there's a small part of my brain that's thinking like this could go really really horrible. Yeah, that that was like like he's walking into a freaking landmine here yeah. by just going back to Russia. Like he's putting himself in harm's way. Um, although like obviously. If you thought your family was in danger, you would do anything uh, to, to to save them. Uh, now, a couple of things I also wanted to point out on my side of things. Uh, Andre Nazrov, uh, not only is he a former NHL goon, he's also shown support, uh, support for Vladimir Putin in the past. Yeah. So uh, the fact that this happens, I don't know, about a month after the Instagram post by Panarin, totally not coincidental at all. Of course. Uh, and I know Putin is good at hockey. I see highlights of him on the rink every year, and he always dominates against the finest beer league competition <laughs> in Russia. But let's not kid ourselves. This guy is dangerous. Yep. And you don't know what he's going to do. And um, there is also a couple of other interesting things. Um, first of all, Nazrov said he was motivated to speak about this alleged incident, air quotes. And not to discount it, but there isn't any evidence that I see that really backs up his claim. Um, and also the timing is a bit weird. Uh, but he said he was motivated to speak about this alleged incident because he disagreed with Panarin's repeated criticism of the Russian government. Right. If you took these things seriously, like, I don't know, sexual assault, which, uh, I don't know if you heard Slava Voinov, uh, right. probably never playing an NHL game again because there's taming evidence against him. Point. If you took these sexual allegations seriously, why not say this in 2011 when the incident happened? Why didn't the GM of the team say something? Why didn't the team drop Artemi Panarin if it was that bad? Why yeah. didn't he get barred from the Russian Olympic team back then? Explain that. If that type of behavior is frowned upon and you want to make a massive statement like that, do it right away. Don't wait 10 years. You are not the victim. You can stand up for what is right, unless, of course, this story is a political hit piece. And we don't know that for sure, but based on what I have seen, there isn't anything that leads me to believe that Panarin is in hot water for this situation. He yeah. could be in hot water for the landmine that he's about to walk into because of this story. And, like, also, Alex Radulov originally liked the Panarin posting on instagram he has since removed that like <laughs> i didn't even know that and why is that well i don't know maybe he has family in russia and fears he could be putting them in yeah. danger by not removing that like also kuznetsov hasn't spoken about this like you mentioned obechkin and malkin haven't spoken about this they have family in russia i'm sure putin doesn't give a flying heck about their families either he put putin will get political points as quick as he can get them if it means he gets to remain as Russian's powerful leader. I will. Wait, wait, wait. Hold this, on. Hold this, on. This hold on. serious bull crap that he's what? walking into. It, this yeah. is no fun and game. Like, this is real. This well, is real life. Wait, hold on one second. Uh, the Well, first off, Ovechkin and Malkin have been very, very pro-Putin. So they they don't have any danger for their... Uh, family members, and I'm sure they do have family members there. If they went against Putin, though. Yeah, if they went against Putin. And they sided with Panarin, though. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Well, okay, so that's... Okay, I thought you were implying that, like, these players shouldn't have to work... Like, 
don't have to worry about their family members. Like, he doesn't care about their family members. But I think he does care about family members, just given their history, that, like, Russia, like, you know, not just, um, like, they, they hate any family member who goes against Mother Russia. So it's, it's like, there is a danger there. But I thought you were, I thought you were saying that they shouldn't worry about their family members, but you were saying that they shouldn't have to worry about their family members. They, they sh- yeah, yep. they shouldn't have to. And, like, yep. if you speak out against – the fact that Panarin spoke out against Putin and now this story has come out, yep. it makes every other Russian player in the NHL think twice about how they respond to this. Yep. And I would think Radulov might have thought twice already because he removed the like. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I didn't even realize that Radulov has had removed the like or even liked it in the first place. But yeah, that's I. You know, the interesting thing about this whole thing, and I guess we'll we do have more to cover um, in this episode, so we'll get to that in a second. But it is interesting how, like, even before all this stuff happened, it is interesting how like guys like Ovechkin and Malkin are in support of Putin. Um, and I wonder how much of it is because they fear um, their families being hurt if they go against Putin. Um, and and in that sense, I do, um, I, I think, like, Panarin deserves so much respect. Um, yeah. Because, like, it's almost at, like, a Colin Kaepernick-type level where, you know, like... He, he doesn't have to do this. Like a lot, like guys, yeah, like, like the, you know, just the art of defecting. Yeah. Like when Alex McGillney defected from Russia to go to the America uh, to, yeah. to the USA to play hockey, that was that was like risking his life in a sense yeah. back then. Like this is just as pivotal. Yeah, of course. I mean, and and I think it's better now because like um, because I think just the relationship with the NHL and the KHL has been better. It's like otherwise, like Kaprizov. Guys like Kaprizov, Gusev wouldn't be like making it down here um, if they d- didn't feel safe doing so. Radulov is another one too, um, but um, yeah, I think. Um, but like, it's it's also like interesting that like, or I was reading reports that like a lot of Russians kind of like stay silent on this whole thing. Like they don't go and support in Navalny like Panarin does and they don't go in support of Putin like Ovechkin yeah. does and they they're, just they're super they're yeah. super neutral they don't even yeah. get into that they don't even comment on it so yeah and that's like that's the other interesting part too where it's just that like you know that they're so like I mean I think that's just NHL players in general that they they're generally not that politically active but it's just so Interesting that you have, like, you know, two big Russian superstars. Of course, you have Kucherov and, um, and I guess Kaprizov has made a name for himself now, too. But he's not on the Ovechkin and Panarin level just yet. but um, Or Kucherov level just yet. But it's, it's so um, interesting that you have, like, one Russian superstar in Ovechkin who's in full support of Ovechkin, uh, of Putin. And you have one Russian superstar, Panarin, who's in support of the opposition. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious to see that dynamic. Like, I, I look forward to the Rangers-Capitals games um, when Panarin gets back um, because I'm sure Ovechkin and Panarin aren't the greatest of friends now. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and for more reasons than one. So it is, it's going to be a little bit dicey for now. And, 
Um, and I hope he, you know, I hope everything is good. Um, but, uh, we should, uh, hope for the best at least and, uh, Mm -hmm. prayers up there. Um, okay. So (laughs) in other news, again, as Steve mentioned, this episode is just full of a bunch of downers. Uh, Linus Ulmark, um, is injured, um, and he's supposedly going to be out for at least a month, um, also, on top of that, Jack Eichel, um, he's injured. He's been out for the last few games. I don't think there's a clear timetable of when he'll be back. Also, uh, Jeff Skinner, there was a couple... He's not injured, but there was a couple times when he was healthy scratch for a couple of games, and um, and then uh, he's recently come back, but he hasn't really done anything. Um, and then there's also like the whole Taylor Hall situation where he hasn't been as good as we expected him to be. Um, yeah, so the Buffalo Sabres have kind of, uh, not been as good. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that, like, I don't think either one of us expected the Sabres to make the playoffs. Um, but I would say that, like, knowing that they did get Taylor Hall, Jack Eichel, I thought, like, Jack Eichel would take a step forward. I thought Rasmus Dahlin would take a step forward. Linus Ulmark is pretty good, too. Um... And maybe uh, Jeff Skinner bounces back a bit. And I was thinking like, okay, then that's like, I can, if, if all that stuff happened, then I think, you know, that, that would be a good, that would be a good season for the Buffalo Sabres. Instead, the opposite has happened where Eichel can't even score a goal, even when he's healthy. Uh, Taylor Hall can't score a goal and he is healthy. Uh, Jeff Skinner is um, probably now, now that he's healthy, scratched a couple times, he's been like he's the worst contract in the NHL. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't. It's just I don't know what to to, do, to make of this Buffalo Sabres team. It seems like they're they're going to they're basically the Oilers if they didn't get McDavid or Drysaddle. It's just um, it's just uh, it's sad in Buffalo. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, like. You would think they'd be able to at least score. Right. I know. <laughs> With the, like, they have Eric Stahl in the picture now. It still doesn't make a difference. Yeah. And to, to comment on how important Linus Olmark has been, he's 5-4-2. and two. Again, not the most fantastic record you've ever seen. James Reimer is a better record. But Linus Olmark's GAA is a lot better than James Reimer. 2.43 GAA, 9.19 save percentage. Yeah, he's been good. That's without any shutouts because it's Buffalo and they can't shut teams out. They can get shut out, but they can't shut out teams. Right. Um, and like you said, Taylor Hall and Jack Eichel have struggled. Jeff Skinner has one assist, 31 shots, no goals in 15 games. That's it. The thing is, though, when he sat out for three straight games, the Sabres went 1-1-1. One, one, and one. The one game that they won, Linus Olmark played like an absolute beast against the Devils. And you wonder why a guy like Skinner scored 40-plus goals in his first year with Buffalo? Because he played top six minutes and got a lot of primary power play minutes. Whereas opposed to since then, with Ralph Kruger behind the bench, he's been a bottom six forward, being utilized as a bottom six forward, not getting the power play minutes, and as a result, he's not doing much. Like, I, unless you're like... A guy like Connor McDavid that can do everything all by himself, you could put Connor McDavid on the third line and probably get away with it. But Jeff Skinner 
needs to be put in the right situation to score a lot of goals, and he hasn't been put in the right situation. I can understand if he's being scratched if he's not helping out with the two-way game. Like, if you're not scoring, you're, you better be doing something else to help your team get points on the board, and Buffalo hasn't done that. So if you need to sit him out for a game or two games, fine. Three straight games where you need goals. This guy can score goals. You need to put him in the right situation to score goals. Yes, part of this is on Jeff Skinner, but you can't you can't look at the Sabres coaching staff and go, what are you doing? Right. Like, like, they're just as much to blame as Jeff Skinner is. Yeah, that's true. I, I do wonder if it's like coaching is an issue or if it's if there's even like uh even something further like the Pagulas, like maybe it goes even further up there. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly a mess. It's it's not it's not great there. I think like Dylan Cousins has, you know, on the bright side of things, like Dylan Cousins has shown, you know, some flashes of what he's capable of, but, um, and I guess Rasmus Dahlin hasn't been as good as he has been hyped about, so, like, he's not making the difference either. So, yeah, it's it's not a, it's not a great situation to be in for Buffalo, for sure, but Yeah, um, and we'll if, if you're thinking of re-signing Taylor Hall, which I hear there's mutual in- interest in a contract extension, yeah. think long and hard before you do that. Yep. Yeah. Before you potentially get another Jeff Skinner, right? That's in the doghouse. Well, I don't. Think I don't long and hard before you sign him. To be fair to that, I don't know if Hall, like Hall, is better than Jeff Skinner. At least you know, at least Hall has had more than one season where he's been really, really good. So um, I know it's so, just it's so, just a matter of paying guys yeah. the the right amount of money, putting True. the amount of money in the right places. That that is how Buffalo is gonna dig themselves out of this hole and it could also be how Buffalo digs themselves down further if they don't do it. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't be opposed to that um, like opposed to that extension either, but I also don't know like, I I, I don't think it's going to be an 8 year, 10 million contract like Jeff Skinner has. Um, I think they I hope that they learn their lesson from that and aren't giving Jeff Skinner that, uh, or aren't giving Taylor Hall that. If they do do that, I, I can see yeah. one year or two years. Yeah, maybe they do that. See how it works, but it like if I'm thinking long term, I really honestly don't know about that. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, so the only bright spot in this episode we have um, is uh, Trevor Zegers. He made his NHL debut. I actually called it last episode, um, and um, I, I mean, it was inevitable. It was the easiest prediction you could make, but I am, I'm going to take uh, ownership of, of being correct in that. Um, he's, you know, the interesting thing and something that I hadn't really thought about before is that Anaheim Ducks aren't good, <laughs> uh, and, um, and yes, they do have, like, a bright, you know, they do have a bright prospect pool. They have one of the better prospect pools in the league. But um, right now, his, you know, just in the NHL, the Ducks aren't that good. It's pretty much just John Gibson and Maxime Comtois um, and and everyone else. So, yeah. uh, so like, I don't expect Trevor Zegers to make a huge impact um, in the NHL if 
uh, right now in this season. Um, if uh, just considering that, where the Ducks aren't that good of a team, and it's not like, and especially for like a playmaker um, that Zegers is, is that like you know it's good that you can pass the puck, but if you don't have any scores on the team, you're you're not going to get any points. You're not going to get any goals. But it was. Um, it was bound to happen because he was ter- he was too good in the AHL. I imagine though that he'll eventually go back to the AHL after maybe seven games, um, so that they don't burn his contract, uh, but or burn his ELC contract. But um, it is it is I have become a Ducks fan pretty much. I I've watched all their games, and um, and he's exciting to watch so far at least um, with the little playing time that he's had, but. I think it's I think it's good to get uh, give him a sense of what the NHL is like, and then he can go back to the AHL and work on what he needs to work on, and then next season he'll be you know rookie of the year Calder um, Trophy um, candidate uh, frontrunner there. Yeah, like th- there are some positive takeaways yep. out of the first couple of games that we've seen from Trevor Segris in his debut. He made some great passes, yep. like awesome NHL caliber passes. One pointless, but who cares? Two shots. He only played 13 minutes and 14 seconds. Like I said, made a couple of great plays. Um, in the second game, it appeared that he got his first career point, but um, the stats guys took it away for some reason. And I don't know if Segrist found out, but um, I like to think he did because he scored a nasty goal in the shootout. Um, and a loss to Arizona, but still filthy goal in the shootout. You wish that counted. Yep. Because it was very, very good. Yeah, that was nice. Um, and that second game, he also had two shots, played 15 minutes and five seconds. I feel that with the world juniors that he had, you need to keep that confidence going. And the best way to do that is to put him in a winning environment. Uh, the San Diego Gulls, the Anaheim Ducks affiliate, have been doing fairly well. Drysdale and Zegers in particular have been yep. driving the boat. Let him flourish the rest of the year in a winning environment. Send him back down and then bring him back up next year, like you said, Brett, so he can really, really show what he's made of. And yep. it, I think, if anything, this short-term call-up showed us that he is NHL ready. Like, he belongs in this league. Yep. He just needs a bit more time, a bit more confidence, and you put him in a better position, and he should do much better, and, and the results will, will start to flow a bit more. But he's not going to get much done with this Ducks roster, I'm sorry. It's John Gibson and everyone else at this point. And, and Maxime Contois, too. He's he's actually sure. been pretty good, too. But, but yeah. this, this Ducks team blew, like, a pair of 3 nothing leads yeah, in a week. Like, to, ugh. To the Arizona Coyotes of, yeah, of all exactly. teams, too. So, yeah, no, I agree. The The Ducks aren't good. I've, I've watched all three of the games that he's been in. Um, and, yeah, he, he looks impressive. There was one point in that second game uh, against Arizona where, it, like, he almost had the game-tying goal, but he just blanked it. And I think he'll, he'll have many more opportunities but uh that's one where i was thinking like oh like watch out the rest of the league once he figures this out you know it's over for this league he's gonna be exciting on the other hand like i I mentioned kaprizov already but like kaprizov is looking really really legit he's um as good as advertised and maybe even more because he's 
he's been driving the Minnesota Wild um, to uh, to a playoff spot. So that's that's also if you want to like, it's weird thinking the Minnesota Wild are like a must watch team, but they're they're there. The Minnesota Wild are like a must watch team. Anyways, see the difference between Kaprizov and Sigurdsson to close on this point. Um, Kaprizov is playing the KHL, so yep. he's playing against the big boys. Like Zegers hasn't really played in that environment. He's been playing course, against yeah. guys his age, and Kaprizov's been in that environment for a couple of years. So it's less of a transition. Maybe he's still a bit of a transition away, but I don't think the transition is as hard for Kaprizov because of that experience that Zegers doesn't have. But oh, I think you will see both players being just as positive contributors to their respective teams in a couple of years both of them are going to dominate this league of course no i i was just saying that like if you want to look at like a player that's been like a rookie that's taken off and has been as good as hype oh, yeah. uh it's mm-hmm. it's kaprizov so um so yeah for sure and of course you're right that like you know the khl is a different uh beast compared to the ahl and the uh, ncaa of course um and sure. even the world yeah. juniors so um but of course, uh, Zegers. I, I'm not like worried about him just yet. Uh, but no. uh, I think the future is bright with him, of course. And I have, and as I mentioned, I'm I'm a bandwagon Ducks fan now. Um, as long yeah. as he's on the you, team. You said this is the most hype player that you've really had your eyes fixated on that doesn't play for the Bruins. Yes, I know. It's it's strange. I was trying to think about that. Like, I guess I've. I've ever been, like, because I have Zegris in uh, two leagues, so that's a big reason why I, yeah. I'm i in on him. He went to BU as well, so that's also, um, I saw a couple of his games when he was at BU, so it's, um, I also have, like, a personal connection just because of the Boston University thing. Uh, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, this has been the most hyped I've looked forward to from a non-Bruins prospect, I guess. I was also looking forward to like Yamamoto. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau was big. I was big on him back when he was starting out too, and for similar reasons because of Boston College. Uh, Jack Eichel, I'm sure was Jack Eichel one, was right? another one. Although it's a little different for Eichel, just because like the Bruins and the Sabers are rivals, so it's like I still feel yeah. weird following Jack Eichel, even though he is like a Boston boy. We have this. We share the same birthday, but. I feel like Caulfield might be another one. No, not Caulfield, just because he's a Hab. I'm never looking forward to a <laughs> Hab playing. Um, but um, if, if, yeah, I guess if Caulfield was on another team, then yes, I, I would look forward to him. Uh, but um, yeah, so that's that's about it. Um, but anyways, uh, we wanted to share some bright spots um, this week, just because everything else is doom and gloom. Um, so yeah, and speaking of doom and gloom, uh, <laughs> here we go again. Yes, and and speaking of the Boston Bruins and the Boston affiliation, uh, Claude Julien. Oh, maybe that's why you were mentioning Cole Caulfield, so I could bring it into the Montreal. yeah. Also, also, yeah, also unintentionally that yeah, yeah. current Hab sure. and for uh, being Caulfield and uh, former Bruin being Claude Julien. Yes, of course. Uh, Claude Julien uh, was fired. Um, I think it. Was on Friday, right, or it might have been Thursday. It was well. So what happened is they lost to Ottawa oh, in right. overtime Sunday. Then they lost to Ottawa again after a controversial call robbed them of a win. Right, but that's side the point. And, 
And um, on Wednesday, the news came down that Julian and assistant coach Kurt Muller uh, both out of the picture uh, with right. the Habs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> thanks for <laughs> delivering that news there. Uh, and Dominic Ducharme is in as the uh, the new interim coach. Um, just a little bit about Ducharme. He uh, he played for a university in his playing career. He played for the University of Vermont. Um, he played for a couple of like French teams. Um, he also played for one year in the uh, for the Cornwall Aces, which I guess was. Uh, do you want to guess what affiliate they were of the NHL? Ooh, um, probably Montreal because it's pretty close to Montreal. You're close, but it was actually the Quebec Nordiques. Um, affiliate. Ah, right. Okay. Um, he also played some in the ECHL, ECAC as well, um, which is Vermont, where Vermont is in, um, but yeah, so he he had a decent like he never made it to the NHL, but he had a five he had five hundred and forty four points in three hundred and eight games, <laughs> all of that combined, uh, from the French league and uh, college and the AHL as well. So he never made it to the NHL. Um, then he had some like head coaching uh, positions um, in the QMJHL uh, for a couple of years. He was uh, the head coach of Halifax. Um, I imagine, I think the timing works out that he coached uh, Jonathan Duran and Nathan McKinnon um, in Halifax. Um, oh, yeah, so that was the 2012 oh, not, not only did he coach them, uh, he coached the Mooseheads to a Memorial Cup win right. in 2013. Yep. And you're right, Druin and McKinnon were on that team. So in the Halifax yep. Mooseheads glory years of the 2010s, uh, he was the guy leading the charge by That's the right. bench. That, that, that sticks out to me just because it was the first year I really paid attention to the Memorial Cup. So I was like, oh, the Halifax Mooseheads are there. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so he... Uh, and then he went to Drummondville um, for two years, but he was for Halifax for five years. Um, and so his coaching record um, in the regular season is... Uh, 255, 158, and uh, 37 overtime losses. Um, so that's pretty decent. Um, and as as you, Steve mentioned, he won the Memorial Cup. Um, although I don't think, has he ever won the QMJHL championship other than that one time? Um, I'm pretty sure in 2013 that tournament... I think it was, oh man, I think it was held in London, Ontario. So I'm pretty sure Halifax won the QMJHL title that year as well. Oh no, I'm just looking that on that team. The Val Dors Froars won that year. <laughs> I think that oh, year. really? Yeah. Val Dor won that year. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, no, I think, no, no, I think... I think Valdor won it the year after 2013-14. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, because, I was saying besides that, like it's assumed if you win the if you win the Memorial Cup, you're gonna win. You won the other. Unless you're the host team. Oh, I guess that's true. But I, I assumed that he won the QMJHL. No, I'm pretty sure Anyways. when Halifax <laughs> won it, they weren't in Halifax. So. Okay. 
So they weren't the host team. Got so it, I'm pretty it. sure. Yeah, they won. They, I believe Valdor won it the year after. But in 2012-2013, Halifax won the QMJHL trophy. Then they won the Memorial Cup. And they beat Seth Jones and the Portland Winterhawks to do That's that. Right. That team I actually watched was that game. coached by, by the way, Travis Green, who's I now actually, coaching the Canucks. Interesting. I actually watched that game. Anyways, we're yeah, getting a, it was a very good game. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we're getting a little bit sidetracked here. Uh, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're so, glad, yeah, it's, it's all right. We're, you know, we're hockey fans. Um, yeah. the, yeah, so Claude Julien is out, which is actually the main story up here, uh, that, uh, yeah, Claude Julien actually, um, he was decent. It was interesting from my perspective, just cause, you know, I, I had watched Claude Julien play in. Or you know, coach in Boston for for many years, and it's just interesting that he goes to the division rival, the team I hate the most. Um, and he actually, you know, he does it like his first couple of years there. He was okay. Um, he you know he won the division title um, his first year in the um, uh, or oh, when he gets in, he gets fired, and then he gets hired. Like a week after, that's right. Um, and then Montreal was I called that, by Atlanta. the way. I called that. Yeah, no, I remember that. And, um, yeah, I was just thinking, like, uh, did did we just make a mistake, like, on the uh, on the level of, like, Babe Ruth to the Yankees or something? But luckily I'm Fast happy with... a few years, and I think your Bruins have done well. No, no, and I think what was interesting about his decline in Boston where... I think we all th- had assumed that a, a big reason why Boston was doing so well was because, like, Claude Julien was a really good coach. And he is a really good coach. Um, I don't want to yeah. say that. But but I think, like, Bruce Cassidy has made this team even better. Um, he's He's gotten more out of the guys that, that include Claude Julien has. Um, and that's kind of what the consensus has been nowadays. Um and in Montreal, he played. Uh, he coached there for five years, if you include that half season, uh, that the time when he stepped in uh, mid-season. Um, so I guess four and a half years. Um, he actually now that if I'm doing math correct, since he also got fired midway through this year, um, he that would be basically four years. Um, yeah, because I believe February the 14th, 2017 is when Tarion was yeah. fired and Julian took over. Yep. And he and Julian got fired, let's see, Wednesday was the 24th. Yep. So four years and ten days. Something like that, yeah. Um, yeah. And, well, yeah, so anyways, um, in Montreal he was, he had a record of, 129, 123, and 35. Uh, they never made the playoffs um, in his reign, um, other than the time he stepped in. Um, and um, and I guess the bubble, but if, if it was a regular season, you know, a normal season, they wouldn't make the playoffs. Um, the... Um, yeah, and the interesting thing about this year in particular was, like, the first couple of games, Montreal looked like the hottest team on, on the planet, um, mm-hmm. and you, like, I remember a couple of my, uh, friends, 
fantasy hockey friends who were saying it's like, because they were comparing it to the Bruins and they're saying like, are the Bruins, like how do the Bruins compare to the Tampas, the Montreals and the, uh, the St. Louis's or Colorado's of the world. And I was just thinking like, wait, people think Montreal is all of a sudden really, really good. I mean, like, I know that they, you know, they beat up on Vancouver a couple times. They beat up on, on Ottawa a couple times. And they were, you know, top of their division. But I was also, like, a little bit skeptical. One, because the Canadian division is crazy. Um, just because it's filled with teams that don't have good goaltending or good defense and a lot of offense on it. But it was, it was kind of like I wasn't so convinced on Montreal. Anyways, the Montreal uh, kind of fell short right after that. And um, I didn't expect him to be fired because I feel like that was a little bit sudden. And they still have a decent shot at making the uh, playoffs even still, um, considering how crazy the Canadian division is. But at the same time, it's like, when you lose to the Ottawa Senators, you know, that's that's just a sign that it's, you know, maybe they're not as good as we all thought they were. Um, Montreal is currently 9-6-5. and five. They currently have, if they if the play, a season ended today, Canadians would make the playoffs right now. So that's um, in good news. However, they would play Toronto, Edmonton, or, Vancouver, uh, or Winnipeg. Um, in the first two rounds, and I'm not sure that they're as good as those three teams. Um, so, so there's that to uh, consider. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think a lot of it was a little bit unfair to Claude Julian, but at the same time, I'm not like so surprised that he got fired. I guess because, um, like, you know, guys like Tyler Toffoli, uh, Josh Anderson have actually been pretty good. He, like, usually my biggest critique of Claude Julien has been is that he doesn't give playing time to the young players. However, Nick Suzuki, he has 18 minutes of ice time. He's been their first-line center for, for the most part. We did a whole segment on that. Uh, Jesper Kotkinemi, I guess he has 13 minutes of ice time. That's not great. Um, you know, that's usually not good, but it's fine. Um, he's the, they've managed to get him a lot of ice time still, but, um, or he's, he's managed with little ice time, I should say. Um, and then also like Alexander Romanov, um, he has 17 minutes of ice time, which is a lot for a rookie defenseman. Um, so like he has, like, I guess you could say that there is a knock on like Kakinemi does deserve more playing time, but like, when you look at his team, um, he has been giving playing time to a couple of, like, the youngsters on the team, like Nick Suzuki and Romanov in particular. But, um, yeah, at the same time, like, you know, it's not really Claude Julien's fault that Carey Price stinks now, all of a sudden. Um, and Jake Allen has, uh, Jake Allen's been pretty good. Uh, he has a 929 save percentage. And a GAA of 2.12. Jake Allen is who Carey Price, everyone in Canada thinks Carey Price is. Um, he's been really, really good. Um, and uh, yeah, he's been four, he's four, two, and two. And a lot of the reason why the Canadians were considered the front runners back in the day was because Jake Allen was playing a lot of those games. Um, 
But again, if you're paying Carey Price that much, then I understand why you have to get him going as well. But I think that has more to do with why the Canadians aren't on the same level as the Maple Leafs or the uh, um, Edmonton Oilers are right now. It's just because Carey Price has been horrendous. Um, he has an 8-8. Eight save percentage and a GAA of three point one three, um, but he still won a couple of games. He's five four and three, but um, but still he's he's not great. Um, he could be better. Yeah, and and again, getting back to the James Reimer stuff, I mean his numbers have just been as pedestrian as Carey Price in terms of GAA and save percentage. But the Carolina Hurricanes yeah. keep winning games, and his record looks great. So yeah, that's a good point. If you're, winning, if you're winning games, it's funny how people can overlook those important numbers because of the win loss record. Yeah, and um, also if you want to take a like uh, even someone we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Sergey Bobrovsky, he's been yeah, terrible too, but he also has a winning record. Um, so <laughs> it's like, okay, is he really that bad? Um, then yeah. Yeah, and I would think, not just in the Canadian division, I think all the NHL, the Habs tandem on paper is probably the best that you can find, honestly. Yep. Like, Carey Price on his game and Jake Gallon plays like that, you're looking in tremendous shape right now if you're the Habs. But Carey Price has looked average at times, subpar, mediocre, not the Carey Price that we know and love, and we'll get to that later on. Um First of all, I don't know what Claude Julien did to Ottawa in his lifetime, but for some reason the Sens, I feel, yeah. are out to get him. That's true. Uh, because the first time he got fired by Montreal was back in 2006. That came after a loss to Ottawa. Uh, roughly one year later, the Devils fire him shortly before the 2007 playoffs, and uh, that was before a game against the Sens, the team that bounced the Devils in round two, while Claude Julien is finding work elsewhere. And for the second time, he's fired by Montreal. It's following a loss to Ottawa. So don't ask me why the Sens keep uh, costing Julian his gig, but uh, for whatever reason, Ottawa has his number. He, yeah. he's, the Sens are coach killers for Montreal, apparently. Who knew? I feel like uh, um, it wasn't just Ottawa. Like I feel like, if I'm remembering correctly, I think last year Ottawa had a, a same kind, similar kind of streak last year where like they would win a game and then the next day the the coach of the other team would lose or would lose their job or something like that I don't, does that sound familiar or am i off base on that um well i know there was there was a, there was the the trend that started everything last year was Flurry making that save against Toronto and then Babcock right. lost his job maybe that's what but i was that thinking but that was no way relation to Ottawa in in a way uh, maybe the sense did um, unintentionally uh, force a coach to get fired. I don't know, but I thought I um, thought Julian wasn't the only coach that the Senators got fired. But maybe I'm off. No, but it's it's just noteworthy that liking keeps uh, striking Claude Julian and yeah. it's the Sens every time. You're true. Like. That is like it is a strange coincidence. That's actually kind of true now at this point. And both ten years in Montreal with a lost Ottawa. But right. anyways, no, no. Um, it should, it should be noted that the sense of this year, it, it just goes to show you that any team in this division can beat anybody. Like, yep. the Sens power play has honestly looked the best it's looked in the past three-plus years since they've been rebuilding. Their young guys look confident. They're no slouch. 
Montreal can't slack on any team. They can't slack on Vancouver or Edmonton or any of the heavyweights, even Ottawa, who's taken three of five from them this year, I believe. So it, it is interesting how this played out. But there are also, um, it should also be noted, there were a couple of losing streaks in previous years, and Mark Bergevin felt that the vibe in the dressing room wasn't looking too good. It kind of reminded him of those losing streaks uh, in the past, those eight-game losing streaks that they had with Julian in the past. And that was kind of a, a bit of a red flag for him. And yep. we'll, we'll get to that later. But this is how some of the Montreal um, Canadiens fans react. And let's remember, Kakanami and Suzuki played great in the playoffs last year. True. Odd Julian had health issues. He wasn't on the bench. Kirk Muller was. Yeah. So we didn't really know what to expect in a full, I wouldn't say normal year, but close to a full season where the schedule gets ramped up like it was with Montreal. The Pabs are going through a grueling schedule, I believe, about a week ago. They went six straight days without a game played because uh, that's just how the schedule worked. And this division, knock on wood, hasn't had a game canceled because of COVID. Yep. Like, none of the NHL games that have been canceled have affected a Canadian team yet. So the fact that the Habs are going through that schedule where it appears that every game is going to be played as normal, they can't afford to lose these games because they're also four-point games. Yep. Like, if you lose two, three, four, five games in a row, you're losing more than just potentially two points a night you're you could be losing four which is something that you don't want like one bad losing streak and you could be out of the playoffs because four teams in this seven team division are going to make the playoffs that's that's just it and if montreal isn't one of those four you're taking a look at this expectations that bergevin has set um they're pretty high and they want to be more than just a playoff team he feels this team can do so much more so uh keeping that in mind here's uh, what uh, some of Habs twitter was saying after kirk muller was let go and after claude julian was let go um let's see this comment comes from leslie he points out montreal decided to fire julian and muller in win now mode after a pair of ot losses and a four and four two record over a 10 game stretch he asked why did this take five years and that's a good question because you look at what Claude Julien has done over the past five years, and we will in a second, you're thinking, what took so long to make this decision? If Bergevin thought the system wasn't working, why didn't he make this move before the season began? And I guess that's one point. Uh, Here's another comment from Marsh. He thinks Julien wasn't good at making counter-adjustments, argues his system wasn't a fit for Montreal, and the players seemed disinterested. That That could be true. Uh, a comment from Brendan says, you can't wait a whole week to start winning. Again, with the schedule that uh, Montreal has to deal with. Good point there. This season's very different. And finally, we got this comment from uh, Jeppo, who says, Julian was literally asking for a pink slip after putting Corey Perry in the shootout and keeping Nick Suzuki on the bench. That That's, that's what really hit me, because... We have seen this a couple of times already where overtime begins and Julian is lining up guys who are more defensive first players. Look at what the Toronto Maple Leafs do in overtime. They put out Austin Matthews out there. They put Mitch Marner out there. They put Morgan Riley out there. In Edmonton, they'd probably keep McDavid and Dreisaitl up for the entire five minutes if they have the option to. 
three-on-three overtime, if you fan on a shot, it could be game over. Like, it's so easy to cause breakdowns in three-on-three overtime. Forget about trying to limit chances on goal the other way. If you think Nick Suzuki can go out there, guns a-blazing, in 10 seconds win the game in overtime, you put him out there. If you think Kakanami can win a big face-off, you put him out there. If you think Kafoli's got the hot hand, put him out there. If you think Jeff Petrie and his booming shot can get the job done, you put him out there. Put out the guys that have the hot hand that you think have the chance to win. If you have guys like Jonathan Druin who have been snakebitten and guys like Philip Deneau and Thomas Tatar and Brett Kulak that have been snakebitten, don't don't double shift them and keep guys like Kakaniemi on the bench. Put out the guys that you think in the here and now can get the job done. Don't be afraid to rely on those young gun players if they think they can thrive in three-on-three overtime. Don't be afraid to adapt and take a chance. And that's something that I think a lot of Habs fans were tired with when it came to Claude Julien and his system. He just wasn't able to adapt in those situations. He did, yeah. (laughs) When you're saying this or when you were reading all those uh, fan comments. A lot of that was like, oh, I remember back when I was angry at Claude Julian because he would put Daniel Paye in the OT instead of like, uh, I think Tyler Sagan or Phil Kessel. And it was just like, uh, yeah, why, why, what Paye are we doing? Great, yeah. Tyler Sagan. Right, right, right. It's a, like, yeah. And, and that was a big reason why, like, the Bruins fired him is like, he, I mean, I guess there was more reasons to why Sagan left, but um, it was pretty clear that Sagan just didn't fit the system. Um, and I think what ended up happening is that Claude Julien's kind of spoiled by having Patrice Bergeron. It's like, as yeah. you were mentioning, it's like, yeah, it's good that you have, like, obviously all these forwards should be defensively responsible and stuff. And that's important. That's an important part of Claude Julien's system. But notoriously, like all young players are going to take a while to like be defensive because they're not good defensively right away. And, um, and that was a big reason why uh, Sagan was so easily tradable. That was why Blake Wheeler was so easily tradable. That was why uh, Phil Kessel was so easily tradable was just because those guys were so young in the system and they weren't able to um, like learn the defensive way that Claude Julien wanted them to, and that's just not their style. Um, like I love Blake Wheeler, I love Tyler Sagan, I love Phil Kessel. Uh, they're not defensive players. Um, and they just he was trying to force them into being a part of that role, and that's just not how you do things. Um, and he, it's clear that just based off of that own rant. You should, you know, we, I thought you may have learned it, um, learned his lesson just because, you know, Nick Suzuki was the first line center for a little bit. Um, but if you're not going to put in Nick Suzuki, who is your best player at this point in like those OT stuff, even if, you know, he's going to make some defensive lapses, that's, you know, that, that doesn't make sense to me. It's just like, allow him to make defensive lapses it's three on three ot it's not uh you know you're you're supposed to make some defensive lapses the whole purpose of it so it's 
that that part does frustrate me too. Um, and but yeah, I think there is something to that. I guess we kind of already covered it, but what led to this coaching change was it inevitable? I think. Um, yeah, I, I guess I could see this being an inevitable thing. I would have liked to see him finish this season out at least. But like, you know, what was it, what's interesting about this season in particular, and I mentioned already, is that like by the end of January, like the Montreal Canadiens were like the hottest team in the league. Um, but at the same time, you know, they had beaten Vancouver a lot. They had beaten Edmonton a lot. Um, and they beat Calgary once in January when I'm looking here. Um, and so like that's. Um, but like now we know that Vancouver um, isn't good defensively. They're they're even worse than Montreal is right now. Um, Edmonton, like it's like you know, of course they have McDavid and Drysaddle, but their defense and goaltending needs work. Where you can um, you can like those kind of games happen all the time for them. But like, although it should be noted yeah. that Mike Smith is quietly being I don't know twenty seven year old Mike Smith right. just because right of course. Um, and like they only, but like they only lost three times in January, once to Toronto, which is fine, but it was like a five, four OT game. Uh, they lost yeah, that was to, their first game of the season. Yeah, that was too. the first game of the season. Uh, they lost to Vancouver as well. I was six, five in the, sh- in a shootout. So that's also mm-hmm. like a close game. Um, they also lost to Calgary January 30th. That was the last day. That was their first regulation loss. Um, but that was two nothing and Calgary's a pretty good team too. Um, they're better defensively than all those three teams I just mentioned. So, and they also have Jacob yeah. Markstrom who shut them out. But then, like I'm looking here, they beat they beat on Vancouver again. Uh, they did lose to Ottawa once, but then they beat Ottawa again. They lost to Toronto, which is respectable. They lost to Edmonton, which is also respectable. Then they beat Toronto, and then they went on to lose um, three straight. Although the the first three of those was when uh, Claude Julien got fired so it's um so i guess it but like when you compare that to like what they did last year which was kind of underwhelming and the years before that was also underwhelming it's it's i guess it is inevitable but at the same time like montreal canadians were on a hot start like i would like to see this through because you never know what's going on in Canada, um, in the Canadian division where like, there's really only one bad team and every other team has at least one flaw in their, in their team. So it's, um, so like they, they could still make the playoffs. I would have liked to see him make it, uh, like till the rest of the season, just to see what he could do with this team. But I, I don't know, maybe there is something behind the scenes that we're not realizing, but, yeah, we'll see. Maybe they just had it with Claude Julian after the Ottawa loss, and they're just like, you know what, we have to do something. Um, because, like you said, that like even if you go on a, like a big losing streak, um, you know, you're 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 kind of out of it in the playoffs, even though they're they're fourth right now in the uh, the division. Yeah, and uh, taking a look at some of like uh, the actual meat, the actual numbers, the Dismissal of Terry and the dismissal of Julian both came at an interesting time because the Habs started off 2016-17 with a 13-1-1 record. Then they went 18-18, and then they went 18-18-7 after that, 
were on the downwards, and Tyrion was dismissed after that in favor of Claude Julian. Second time, by the way, that's happened. And um, then you look at Montreal, as you mentioned, Brett, seven, one, and two of the start this year. Then they lose six of eight. Uh, and in the second to last game that um, Julian coached, they gave up like five or six breakaways, and Jake Allen had to be sharp every single time. Like, like that kind of stuff can't happen. Like, you look at the expectations that Montreal set out, that Mark Bergman set out. Sportsnet's Elliot Freeman actually pointed out there aren't many owners in North American pro sports who have committed actually more dollars during the pandemic than Jeff Molson, the owner of the Habs, which is interesting hmm. because that brings its own set of pressures. Like, he's actually investing more money because he believes in this group. He believes in Bergevin's, in Bergevin's vision. And Bergevin said, simply put, at the beginning of the year, making the playoffs simply isn't going to cut it. Like, he thinks this Habs team could do more. They He thinks this Habs team could contend for the Stanley Cup. And Claude Julien believed that they could potentially go all the way with this group. So there was a lot of expectations for the Habs to do well. And yeah. the fact that they're trending downward is definitely not a good sign. And Bergevin said he didn't feel that Claude Julien lost the room, but he felt that um, things were kind of trending in the wrong direction. And he felt uh, that he should intervene before things really fell off the cliff. Uh, now, taking a look at some of the stats, like the record is kind of fluctuated with Claude Julien. Um, and towards the end of the 2016-17 season, this team performed well under Julian. They lost in six games in round one to the Rangers in the 2017 playoffs. Uh, but Henrik Lundqvist was just hot in round one that yep. year. Like, he owned the Habs. So not much you can do there, I guess. Then you look at the next year, where they go 29-40-13. That's 71 points in a 82-game season near the very bottom of the league. 28 out of 31. 2018-19, they go 44-30-8. That's 14th in the league. Barely missed the playoffs because Columbus just sneaks in, and then they sweep Tampa, of course. Uh, but 96 points in 82 games, not bad. They regress again, 31-31-9 last year, 71 points in 71 games. If you go by the usual 16-team playoff format, they don't make it. They barely snuck in as the lowest seed of the bunch. Yep. And this year, they're 9-5-4 and four to start the year before Julian gets fired. You look at the penalty kill and the power play. This is where Claude Julian kind of gets in a bit of a hot water because the power play in 17-18, it's over 20%. The only time it's happened in, in his regime over a full season, they were 12th that year. And they were 29-40-13. and 13. Then it goes down to 13.3%. They're 30th out of 31, but they almost make the playoffs. Gets better in 2019-20. They're 17.7%. 22nd in the league, and they barely sneak into the playoffs. This year, 18.2%, which is 20th out of 31 teams. You look at the penalty kill in 17-18, 74.1%. That's 30th out of 31 teams. I believe the Islanders were the only other team that was worse in that regard. Uh, their penalty kill did improve to 80.9%. In 1819, that was 13th overall, but uh, then it's 78.7%. That's 19th in 2019-20. This year, 76.4%. That's 22 out of 31 teams. 
Here's the interesting part. While you look at the records fluctuating and you look at the shots for shots against per game, I kid you not, Brett, in three straight years, 2018-19, last year, and this year when Julian got fired, they have averaged 34.1 shots per game on goal. Exactly that in three straight years. 34.1 in 18-19, 34.1 last year, 34.1 when Julian got dismissed this year. That was third overall, second overall, and second overall in the league, respectively. And yet you look at the power play and the penalty kill fluctuating, you look at their team record fluctuating, you would think with all of those shots on goal, the power play would be much better, the penalty kill would be much better, overall they would be much better, and it just hasn't happened that way. So even with this improved group, I'm just thinking how much more can Claude Julien get out of the Montreal Canadiens? And I think that's part of the reason why Bergeron made the change when he did. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it was inevitable when you put it like that, but um, at the same time, I would have liked to see him finish the season uh, before we do that. But I guess you are correct that it, it could have. Um, it was kind of inevitable. Um, can uh, Dujarm make the Habs into a playoff contender this year? I th- yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because he hasn't, coached at all in the NHL level um and so that's that's the interesting part but he has had success in the QMJHL um so I I am curious to see how he does um I find it interesting just the fact that the um the Montreal Canadiens always have coaches that speak French Canadian um so like this would be an interesting thing so like you know, if you look at their coaching history, it's pretty much Michelle Therrien, Claude Julien, and Elaine Vigneault. And those are like, those have been the three coaches that they've had uh, for the last 20 years. Um, so it's, it is insane when you think of it. But um, yeah, I think it is definitely possible that the Montreal Canadiens can sneak into the playoffs, but I don't think they're beating Toronto um, in a seven-game series, and I don't think they're beating Edmonton in a seven-game series. Maybe Winnipeg, but I don't think Winnipeg is beating Toronto or Edmonton in a seven-game series either. So, um, so yeah, I think I think they could make the playoffs, but I don't think they're going to go very far. I think a lot of it hinges on their goaltending. We'll talk about that later, yeah. but there are a lot of challenges that Ducharme's going to have to fix. First of all, the special teams, power play and penalty kill, got to be better. Uh, and then you take a look at some of the individual players that were in, quote-unquote, Claude Julien's doghouse, I'd like to call it. Um, you look at Thomas Tatar, he struggled. Philip Deneau struggled to score goals. Jonathan Druin, who Ducharme has coached in junior before, struggled to score goals. How is he going to get him involved? Um, is, ben Chiron, uh, is Ben Chiron a top-pairing defenseman? And how often is he going to use him as head coach of the Habs, uh, do they need to revamp the power play? Do they need to look at how they kill penalties differently? Being a CHL coach of the year definitely helps because you're the cream of the crop in your profession, and don't let the gray hair fool you. This guy's only 47 years old. This is probably the toughest challenge that's 
that he's had to deal with. So it's going to be pretty tough. And on top of all of that, you need to get everyone on the same page. You need to get those struggling guys going. But you also need to get the young guys involved. Of course, Nick Suzuki being the main one, but also Yasperi Kakaniemi, who's been up and down, I find, as an NHL player. Uh, There was also interesting stat that I found about Kakaniemi at 5-on-5 this season in terms of points per 60 minutes played. This guy, believe it or not, is ahead of names like Crosby, Malkin, Elias Peterson, Braden Point, Barkov, Ryan O'Reilly, Claude Giroux, Bo Horvat, John Tavares, Jack Eichel, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Andrei Sveshnikov, Kyle Connor, Artemi right. Panarin. If, if you think he could do well in your system, you need to give him the opportunities to thrive. Let him learn. Like I said before, don't be afraid to let the young guys go into those situations and make mistakes. Give Kokaniemi more reps to prove himself. Give Alex Romanov more minutes. And I think ultimately that's what is, and I said before in the season preview, Montreal can take the next step if those guys really evolve this year as players. And it's going to be a tough task because those young guys – it, it doesn't always happen, as I've mentioned in the past. It doesn't always happen where those young guys flourish right away. Sometimes it takes time. But you need to give them the opportunity to really, really thrive. So it's really tough for, for me to say that he can turn the Habs into a playoff team. And even if he does, how good they can be. Mm-hmm. Because this this team has definitely a lot of weapons, a lot of versatility, a lot of options for him to work with. But again, there's only one puck on the ice. So the top nine and the top four defensemen are only going to get so many chances to prove themselves. And you really need to get people to buy in. So I, I just I just don't know as a whole if everyone can pull the rope at the same time and really prove that they can beat those heavyweights. There's no doubt they can hang with the heavyweights like Winnipeg and like Edmonton and Toronto. But they need to beat some of those teams. And it's really tough to do that when a lot of those teams have elite players like McDavid and Dreisaitl and Matthews and the like. Yeah, that's certainly a part of it. And that's kind of what what I was saying, too. Uh, I shortened it a little bit there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you kind of touched on this um, in the past, but we're actually going to get into it now. Uh, So... They have, I guess there's two big problems with the Habs team right now. Uh, one is their their offense isn't good. Um, they The highest point scorer right now is Jeff Petrie. He's a fine player, but uh, when he's your top point getter, that's not a good sign um, of being a good team. He has 18 points in 20 games. Um, Tyler Toffoli has 17 points in 20 games. However, like most of those, and he has 12 goals, but... Most of those goals were against his former team in Vancouver, so um, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. But he's you know twelve goals isn't anything to sneeze at, especially at, at least he can against... score goals. Right, exactly. So at least he can score. Um, then you have Nick Suzuki, fourteen points in twenty games. Uh, we've we've already talked about Nick Suzuki ad nauseum um, before uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but like, yeah, again, he has 18 minutes of, uh, uh, average ice time, um, which is impressive considering, 
like he has 14 points in 20 games. It's just impressive considering like Claude Julian's just not, you know, sometimes doesn't, you know, puts him on a leash in some sense. So um, it's impressive that he's even gone that far with it. Uh, Jonathan Durant, then it starts to get a little bit like, uh, uh-oh, what's going on here? Uh, Jonathan Drouin, he has two goals and 11 assists, 13 points in 20 games. Josh Anderson, who's actually looked pretty decent and may live up to his contract, but again, he has nine goals, three assists, 12 points in 19 games. Uh, not great, not terrible. Uh, Thomas Tatar, 10 points in 19 games. Brandon Gallagher also has 10 points, but in 20 games. Uh, Shea Weber, he's Shea Weber, but he has 9 points in 20 games, that has to be better. Akatki Nemi has 9 points in 20 games, but again, as we mentioned, he has like 14 minutes of ice time on average. Um, Philip Deneau has 8 points. Uh, Joel Armia has 8 points, but in 13 games. Corey Perry has 5 points in 13 games. So yeah, the list goes on and on. Uh, Alexander Romanov has 5 points in 19 games, although Romanov, I think, is more known as like a shutdown defenseman instead of an offensive defenseman. So, so yeah, that's not great. And as I mentioned before, Carey Price, I'll, I'll say this again, he has a 3.13 GAA and a save percentage of 8.88, um, but he's 5-4-3. and three. Uh, Jake Allen has been the MVP of the Montreal Canadiens. He's had a 9.29 save percentage and a GAA of 2.12. Um, Four, two, and two, so that means that Jake Allen has played in less games than Carey Price. But at the same time, you know Jake Allen is putting up Carey Price numbers, or what we expect Carey Price to be. Um, so it's like it's interesting from that perspective because Jake Allen's like making um, less money than Carey Price is, but he's outperforming him um, uh, by a lot, kind of like a Chris Dreiger, Sergei Bobrovsky situation. Um, and however, like Jake Allen isn't getting as many starts. So the question here is, is like, what is the bigger issue is the Habs offense or Price's performance? And the answer is both, <laughs> uh, both carry price should be better. Um, and this, the offense should be better. Uh, particularly like I thought Philip Deneau was a pretty good two way forward, um, a two way center and he hasn't lived up to that expectation that I've had of him. Um, and, you know, Jonathan Duran hasn't been as good. Josh Anderson, I've actually liked what I've seen out of him, but, you know, maybe there's, like, Brandon Gallagher could be better. There's a lot of these players that could be better as well, And but I think the goaltending is also a big need, too, is Gary Price needs to be Gary Price. Yeah, like, he had a great game. Uh, in Claude Julien's final game, uh, Carey Price gave the Habs a chance to win that game. However, I saw Brady Kachuk had a monster game that night. Uh, got into a couple of scraps. He had two goals, I think one assist as well, and like eight shots on goal. I saw both of Brady Kachuk's goals, and I thought, yeah. Carey Price needs to make that save. Like... Yeah. The 4-4 goal was from a bad angle through the 5-0. Just like a $10 million goalie needs to make that stop in his sleep. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that shot handcuffs Carey Price. And you're right, Brett, it is both. But 
the reason why Montreal was not as good in previous years when Price wasn't there is because they couldn't get away with scoring three goals every night. But Carey Price isn't even playing, like, average right now. Like, in 183 games since the start of 2017-18, he has a 909 save percentage. And you look at his 5-on-5 numbers, Jake Allen has a 945 save percentage. Carey Price is... Is good, but it's 920. It's still yeah. lower than Jake Allen. And both guys in five-on-four situations haven't been good. So I guess you could blame the Hab system in, in that sense. But Carey Price, since the start of last year, has been charged with five-plus goals 11 times. No goalie has done that. Not even a goalie on the sentence has done that. Right. So there's no doubt that in order for the Montreal Canadiens to do better... Carey Price needs to do better. And I'll hearken to just how important Carey Price is. I'll flash back to when Claude Julien took over in 2016-17. The Habs power play when Julien took over was at 14.3%. That's 24th out of 30 teams. Their penalty kill, 88.9% first in the league. They were 12th in the league in shots per game. They had the ninth lowest shots against per game. They scored the fifth. They scored the fifth U.S. goals under Claude Julien in those 24 games with 59, but the only other team to give up fewer goals than Claude Julien and the Canadians during that 24-game stretch in 2016-17 was the Anaheim Ducks, and that team had John Gibson on it. You look at the key players from Montreal back then, Andre Markov, Max Pacioretty, Shea Weber, Alex Galchenyuk, remember when he was a top-six forward, Right. Alex Radkov and Brendan Gallagher. Carey Price during that time, 13-6-0, 1.72 goals against average, 937 save percentage, one shutout, and faced the 20th most shots. So I don't know if Carey Price can be that good, but if he can be a fraction of how good he was in that run, the Habs are going to be all right, and they have a fighting chance. But if not, I don't like their chances at all. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of it will come with Carey Price, so I guess he it is the bigger issue. Um, but, yeah, I think it's also, like, we shouldn't disregard the fact that, like, the Habs aren't scoring. They don't have McDavid. They don't have Drysdale. They don't have Marner. They don't have Matthews. So uh, they can't, um, you know, they can't, they don't have these like elite forwards as well. So that's, but that's been a bit big issue for them for the past couple of years. Um, so I don't know. Um, we'll see. Uh, but so the good news is at the start of the year, they, they were scoring goals pretty well with Claude Julien as coach. True, true. So there's no denying that they can't do it. They have done it. Yep. They just need to get back to that. For sure. Uh, so, and then the last question here, I know we're, we're running long here, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so this is Mark Bergevin's team. Um, he assembled this. He, you know, he went out of his way to get Josh Anderson. Uh, he signed, um, there was another, oh, he signed Corey Perry as well. Um, you know, he, he, uh, you know, he traded away Max Domi for Josh Anderson, like I said. He's done a couple of, you know, I think Josh Anderson is working um, at least. Uh, maybe not $5.5 5 but 
he's like better than what he was last year. So I think that's that was a good move, but maybe not Corey Perry. <laughs> that's not a great move, but um, overall he's he's been okay. Um, however, uh, this is going to be a Ducharme is going to be Bergevin's third coach. Of course, it's like an interim coach, so I guess Bergevin has, um, you know, he, he may not make him into a full-time coach. But anyways, um, it should be asked because Bergevin did build this team um, and made all these trades and all these draft picks. Um, but how long is Bergevin's leash? Um, like, do we say that? Like, is it over if they don't make the playoffs this year? with Ducharme there or do, do does he get afford like another coaching change um maybe next year if Ducharme doesn't fit the build uh right away so yeah I I think he probably will get another coaching change so I'm not sure if Ducharme is the right fit just now um, there's also a guy named Gerard Gallant who's on the market right now. So maybe they um, they try to get him in if uh, Seattle's not going to take him. But um, but yeah, I, I, I am curious what your thoughts on this is because Bergevin should be on the hot seat right now. Well, the thing with Mark Bergevin is that the expectations for Montreal's owner, Jeff Molson, are pretty high. He's already set the bar pretty high. He can't just set the bar pretty high and just say, okay, well, I tried to change things. So that means I'm back next year, right? Right. He, he's he's going to fall on his own sword if the Habs don't make it out of the first round. I don't think there's a question that this is his last year in Montreal. Like, some some coaches are lucky if they even get past – or sorry, some GMs are lucky if they get past um, making their second coaching change. Some might be out with the coach at the same time. Right. I think Bergevin's leash is very short here. And if this short-term experiment with Ducharme doesn't last, I don't think he gets another chance to fix this mess. It ultimately depends, of course, if Jeff Molson has all the confidence in Mark Bergevin, at some point, that confidence is going to waver. Yeah. He gave Bergevin all that money to make all of these changes with the roster. And if it becomes clear that the roster isn't the problem, not just the coach, then Bergevin becomes the problem and a, a change has to be made there. And I have most of these have notes saved up because I feel they're going to be needed for a future episode. Yeah. Bergevin is so darn confident with the roster that he has assembled if that team fails to deliver, there's no one to blame but himself, and he'll pay the price with his job. So, yeah, Bergevin better be right with this one, or else he'll be gone. Yeah, it was interesting when you mentioned that because I didn't realize that it happened. That he he said that he believes that the Canadians are like not just a playoff team, but a playoff contender that should be in the Stanley Cup. So um, that that's like when I look at this team, I'm like. What what is he saying that I'm not? Um, so so that that that's more of like a shocking thing to me. So yeah, I guess you're right. If if he is expecting to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals, um, then yeah, he's probably getting fired by the end of this year. Um, but it is interesting that like then knowing all that, that 
like the coach is an interim coach and hasn't like hasn't coached an NHL t- game. Um, like this is this is his first couple of NHL games, so that's like the interesting part is like I think he might be expecting to have another season at least uh, where he can get a, a guy who's more full term, but. If you really believe this is a Stanley Cup team and you just get a coach that hasn't even coached an NHL game before, uh, like, what are you doing here? Uh, so, um, so that's the, that's the interesting part too, is just like, maybe it will work, but I don't know if it will, um, the, the way that the other thing to. with Ducharme, though, that I should point out is when he made the change for Claude Julien, Claude Julien just happened to be available at the right time. Right. Bergevin was lucky to get Claude Julien when he did. Right. He, I, I will say this. Bergevin made a proactive decision to get Dominic Ducharme a few years before this coaching change was made. So at the very least, Ducharme had some sort of experience of the NHL environment and the intricacies involved with coaching an NHL team. So at the very least, he had some experience. He wasn't going in cold turkey to fix this team, unlike Bruce Cassidy, where he comes from the AHL and works with the Bruins right away. So I will say that there is some advantage with Ducharme. He does have a little bit of experience. Yes, it's a bit different compared to the head coaching aspect, but at least he's been around the team. He kind of knows the players a little bit, what they can do. So in that sense, Dominic Ducharme is somewhat ready to handle this position. It's a tough task, and not a lot of team, and not a lot of coaches can solve this problem. It's a going to be a tough one, but I think he has a reasonable shot of doing it. And I, I either way, uh, uh, this I would call this a coaching hire. It, it might be an interim hire, but Bergman believes that Ducharme can do the job. And if he can't, that's another strike on Bergman, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I guess that's a fair point. I, I, I sort of think of it as like an interim coach, and like, yeah, you're right that he does have, like, yeah, he may not coach in the NHL before, but it's still like you know, and he, you know, someone like Patrick Waugh has like coached. Uh, he, you know, he skipped the AHL and all that stuff, and. Yeah. coached right away after coaching in the QMJHL. So, like, there is some experience there, but I, I still feel like it's 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 like a another leap from a QMJHL to the NHL um, that needs to be had. So I, I, I'm just saying, like, it's, it's a very risky move to do that. Like, why didn't he just get the Laval Rockets coach? Or why didn't he get the, um, you know, Gerard Gallant um, if if this is a coaching hire, um, then, then yeah, that, that's just, that part doesn't necessarily make sense to me. Um, maybe there has something to do with the fact that it's a pandemic. So you have to like quarantine these coaches. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it too, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I'm not sure if I love the idea of like getting in a coach that hasn't even coached an NHL game before. Um, and and expecting him to save the season, um, so that's just a lot of pressure on him. Um, so yeah. we'll see. Um, we'll we'll see. Um, all right. So that's about it. Sorry for a long episode, but as you can say, see uh, from from now, it's it was a much needed one because all of the topics we talked about were 
um, important to, to get off our chest. So um, that's good. Um, there, you can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Follow us there. Um, our or subscribe to us there. Our Facebook is Lace Em Up. Our Twitter is Lace Up Podcast. That's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in episode 259 of the Lace Em Up Podcast.